We've got our final message this morning in the Testify series. So you can turn with me to Jeremiah 33. Before we do that, let's begin with a word of prayer. Father, we want to be like Simeon. We want to have a holy anticipation to encounter the Messiah. And your word testifies to him. So that's all we're asking right now. Is in your spirit, let us see Jesus. And let us be changed by what we see. Do that for your glory, Father. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now, I'm sure this is an answer in the, infer- in the affirmative, but I'm going to ask the question anyway. Have you, ever, have you ever really wanted something? And not like a trivial thing, like I really want a motorcycle. And, and Hannah really doesn't want me to have one. Like, not a trivial thing like that. But like really wanted something, wanted something badly, wanted something that you really, as you examine things, thought, I think this is a godly desire. I think this is a right longing. And and I want it, and I'm praying for it, and I'm I'm trying to pray for it according to God's will. Because I want it, there's a consistency with which I bring my request to God, right? It's not just like there's this really intense week where you want it, and then you kind of forget about it. This is like, ongoing, week after week, month after month. The kind of thing you kind of lay awake at night thinking about, hoping about, interceding before God about. In the midst of that, the asking and the waiting, it can get agonizing if it never seems to come to fruition. You ever had those things that you just you want and it seems like they're good and it doesn't come? In those situations, it become a real test for our faith, can't it? There was a woman, her name was Ruby Hamilton. She was saved when she was in her 20s, and she had one of these longings. She got saved in her 20s, and, and for 30-some years, she was married to her husband, good guy. They, they owned a business together in the Chicago area. The business flourished. By all accounts, things were going well in their life, healthy family. You know, The business is profitable. The marriage is healthy. But where Ruby got saved in her 20s, her husband never did. And so you can imagine that longing. It's this godly longing, right? She wants her husband to know the Lord. And so for years, she prayed faithfully for him to come to faith. Year after year, week after week. And at one point later in life, she felt like she received a word from the Holy Spirit. She had a sense one day when she was praying, there was just a peace that filled her as she was praying for her husband, and she sensed from the Lord that he was going to bring him to faith. And there was just a hope that filled her, and this sense of God had met her. It's sort of like along the lines of what Simeon had, where there's this sense where the Holy Spirit, I mean, Simeon's is more objective. The Holy Spirit reveals to him objectively, you will see the Messiah before you die, and it happens. She has a more subjective sense along those same lines. My husband's going to be saved. And then one day, abruptly, Her husband dies in a tragic accident. And she was crushed. Can you imagine decades of longing? This man that you love with all your heart. And you know he's going to perish if he doesn't know Christ. 
and you get this sense, this subjective sense of hope that God is going to bring him to faith. And then he dies. And it crushed her. It led her to the brink of, of total despair, of, al- of almost walking away from God. Well, that's the kind of disappointment, the kind of doubt, the kind of grief that I think the prophet Jeremiah can sympathize with in today's text. That kind of heartbreak. Jeremiah is a prophet that we get tons of biographical information on. That's not always the case. Sometimes we get these prophets, that they write a book, and it's like we don't really know who the prophet is. We just try and piece together kind of scant information to give us a sense of who it is. Not so with Jeremiah. Jeremiah, there's tons of information about who he is, where he was born, what he did. So much of the book of Jeremiah is recounting what's happening with Jeremiah personally as he's going through these prophecies and these oracles. And here's the thing. He lives in like the worst time ever for a prophet in Israel. He's a prophet of the southern kingdom to Judah, and everything is falling apart. And so his job as a prophet is to go to the people and to warn them about impending destruction. Time and again, to go to his people and call them to repentance. And as the years go by, I talk about a a holy longing, right? That God's people would turn back to him giving oracles of God that are meant to be divine warnings. Destruction is coming if you don't repent. And to see them not heed it. And instead go deeper and deeper into rebellion and idolatry. To the point where at the beginning of our chapter, Jeremiah 33 this morning, he's in prison. Now, Judah is getting dominated by the Babylonians and Nebuchadnezzar. So you read 33 and you think, oh, he's in a Babylonian prison, right? He's in a Judean prison. He's in prison in the house of the guard in the city of Jerusalem. 33 verse 1 says, The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah a second time while he was still shut up in the court of the guard. So this is the second time God has given him an oracle while he's in prison. So he's got this message of impending judgment and he's been giving it to the king, to all the people. And you know what happens? We don't like that message. We're going to throw you in prison. So he gets thrown in prison He's facing, so think of this, Jeremiah is in a situation, he's facing religious persecution. Kind of stuff you get like Voice of the Martyrs updates about. He's facing religious persecution as God's prophet at the hands of God's people and God's king. That's a hard kind of religious persecution, right? I don't know that there's a Voice of the Martyrs organization in Judah at that point. So that's where he's at. And to compound that, He's in the prison cell, and outside the walls of Jerusalem, Babylonian armies are building weapons of siege to destroy Jerusalem. There's a king, Zedekiah, sitting on the throne, who's not the real king. The real king got hauled off, and this is a puppet king. He's the uncle of the real king. So he's just this puppet of Nebuchadnezzar back in Babylon. So everything is slipping away. And this prophecy comes to Jeremiah. He's sitting in prison. He receives another word from the Lord. Can you kind of imagine him sitting there like, I don't really know how the prophetic things happen to these guys, but like, Jeremiah, really, Lord? I have to have another word? Like, you see where all the words have gotten me? And like, no one's responding. Like, they're really tone deaf. You got, you got to do a work on them before you give me another word. I don't know if I can do this again. I'm already in prison. If, if you give me another word, like all the other words you've given me, and I go out there, they can't send me in prison again. Are they going to kill me? 
you ever had a prophet who wanted to have a mute button for God's oracles? It might have been Jeremiah. But listen to what God showed him. Read along with me, Jeremiah 33, starting in verse 14. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will fulfill the promise I made to the house of Israel and the house of Judah. In those days and at that time, I will cause a righteous branch to spring up from David, and he shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In those days, Judah will be saved, and Jerusalem will dwell securely. And this is the name by which it will be called. The Lord, our righteousness. For thus says Yahweh the Lord, David shall never lack a man to sit on the throne of the house of Israel. And the Levitical priest shall never lack a man in my presence to offer burnt offerings, to burn grain offerings, and to make sacrifices forever. The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. Thus says Yahweh the Lord, if you can break my covenant with the day and my covenant with the night, so that the day and night will not come at their appointed time, then also my covenant with David, my servant, may be broken. So he shall not have a son to reign on his throne. In my covenant with the Levitical priests, my ministers. As the host of heaven cannot be numbered and the sands of the sea cannot be measured, so I will multiply the offspring of David my servant and the Levitical priests who minister to me. The word of the Lord came to, Jer to Jeremiah. Have you not observed that these people are saying the Lord has rejected the two clans that He chose? Thus they have despised My people so that they are no longer a nation in their sight. Thus says Yahweh the Lord, If I have not established my covenant with day and night, and fixed the order of heaven and earth, then I will reject the offspring of Jacob and David, my servant, and will not choose one of his offspring to rule over the offspring of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. For I will restore their fortunes, and I will have mercy on them. The word of the Lord. May he write its truth. On our hearts. After a lifetime of disappointment, finally, God shows Jeremiah an oracle of the one who is coming. A righteous branch, he says. A righteous branch that's going to spring up from David. So there's going to be somebody who comes who's born in David's line that's going to restore things the way they should be. Going to wipe away the years of letdown. You know, wipe away the disappointment. Now, three things I want us to see about how God promises the branch will do this. First, the branch is going to wipe away this disappointment because the branch is going to bring justice to a fragmented world. Now, just this week, if you've been watching the news at all, you know who passed away, right? Nelson Mandela, 95 years old. He was in prison for 27 years in the apartheid government of South Africa. Now, he's not a perfectly moral example. A little side note, no men are. <laughs> no humans ever are. They all have their feet of clay. But Mandela is remembered and celebrated here on his death because he was a man who stood against the brokenness and the oppression and the tyranny of the world. He was in prison for 27 years because he demanded that the people of color in South Africa be treated with equality by a government and nation that was built on hatred. He's celebrating. There was, there was stuff on the news last night outside of his home. They, people had gathered and they kind of expected it to be sort of like a vigil. 
and it had turned into like a celebration. People are like dancing in the streets and singing songs, and they just said, you know, we've known he's going to die for a while. What we're here to do is celebrate his life and what he accomplished. We're here to celebrate the fact that apartheid was broken because he stood firm and fought it for 27 years. The reality is, there are other systems of injustice in the world, right? It's not just the former apartheid in South Africa. There are other places where we see justice failing. The weak being crushed. In in Pakistan, just this week, a teenage girl was shot by the Taliban. You know why she was shot? Because she dared to blog that women should have the right to education. The right to be made literate and to learn. So she was shot. That's not justice. In the same country, we, we know of a friend a friend of our good friend, a relative whose whole family has faced persecution, been been driven out of their homes. Why? Because they don't worship the right God. Instead, they worship Jesus. It's injustice. Unborn babies in our country have no legal protection unless they're desired by the mother. Mandela may have inspired us, but every night the news reminds us this world is still a broken place. The strong still prey on the weak. Jeremiah 33.14 I will cause a righteous branch to spring up from David and he shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. You should like have that text open in front of you every time you watch the nightly news. That is just a downer. And I will cause a righteous branch to spring up from David and he will execute justice. That's what that word is supposed to do. God's promise through Jeremiah is that there is a day coming when justice will finally return. But but it's hugely ironic, isn't it? He's promising justice and righteousness while in the very city of Jerusalem, the prophets unjustly in prison. In the very city of Jerusalem, there's rampant injustice happening in the streets. That's what happens. None of us have ever experienced like siege warfare. We don't have walls around our cities. None of us have ever experienced an invading army. When an invading army comes in, justice doesn't reign. Things get crazy in the streets. People panic. You're grabbing and reaching for water and supplies and food. Gasoline riots, the whole thing. That, that's what would happen in a modern situation. People boarding up their homes, not letting their neighbors enter because you're there to protect only your own. That's what's happening in Jerusalem. The weak are, are starving. And the rich are hoarding. Even more than this, there's a supposed heir of David sitting on the throne. It's like, here's Jeremiah saying, there's going to come one from David. And he's going to bring justice. And like the people are reading it and thinking, there's one from David. And all he's bringing is ruin. So there's this irony that's sitting there in the text. It's so bad in Jerusalem at this point. Prophets aren't getting imprisoned because what they say doesn't come true. Prophets are getting imprisoned because what they're saying is coming true. 
And in the midst of all this chaos, all this brokenness and injustice, the Lord tells Jeremiah, reassure my people. You don't want the mute button for this message. One day I'm going to put the true heir of David back on the throne. Godless nations won't conquer you. Children won't die from hunger. Religious, racial persecution will cease. Jeremiah's prophecy has this curious phrase in verse 16. In those days, Judah will be saved and Jerusalem will dwell securely. And this is the name by which it will be called the Lord our righteousness. The Lord our righteousness. Yahweh our righteousness. Jerusalem is going to get the designation Yahweh our righteousness. Now, here's the reason Jerusalem is going to get that name. It's going to get that name because the branch is going to reign in Jerusalem. Here's the point. Righteousness and justice are going to be so like part and parcel with the reign of this king that where this king reigns from is just going to be known as, where are you going? I'm going to justice and righteousness. Oh, we're going to Jerusalem. Yep, because that's where the king reigns. The king of justice and righteousness. The king, Yahweh, our righteousness. That's a cool city to be. You just talk about where are you heading to? I'm going to the place where there are no wrongs. I'm going to the place where things happen like they're supposed to. That's what's going to happen. It, Jerusalem's going to be not just defined, but named by righteousness. Days are coming when the true king is going to sit on the throne and all the hurts. Think of the hurts in your life right now. The hurts in the lives of your loved ones. All the hurts are going to be undone. The tears are going to be wiped away. And not just wiped away, they're going to be put away. This is the hope that Christ fulfills. Here's the thing though. If that's the hope that Christ fulfills, how do His people live in light of that? It's the hope His people are called to anticipate. We're called to testify to, to witness to in the way that we live our lives. When He returns, He's going to be seated in a new Jerusalem. And all that Jeremiah predicted will be true. That doesn't mean you ignore injustice just because, well, there's going to be a day when it's done away with, so I'm just out for me and mine right now. No, you anticipate it. You long to see it lived out as much as possible as we wait for it to come. You vote against injustice. You labor against it. You fight against it. I have, we have a friend who lives down in Phoenix. She's busy. She has stuff going on in her life. She's got four kids. You know what that's like? There's not tons of extra hours in the day. But it wasn't just enough to feel bad about abortion. She started giving her time in this really sacrificial prayer ministry partnering with this abortion clinic on the campus of Arizona State University. So there's this abortion clinic. This is just disgusting. It's on the campus, right there. Just feeding and praying on the young women at that school. And she just said, it's wrong. It's unjust. And so she's on this prayer list where she gets called and they say, a woman just came in, a 20-year-old woman, and she's thinking of having an abortion. 
but but the line was too long at the abortion clinic, so she came here instead. Pray for her. She's laboring against injustice. Isn't that what the parable of the Good Samaritan is? Now we don't know what's going on in the hearts of like the priest and you know the Levite that walk by on the other side of the road. Maybe they're thinking, oh, Jeremiah 33, there will be a day. Not today, but there will be a day. No, the point is, the Samaritan comes and says, this is a wrong that has to be righted. That's why we champion men like William Wilberforce. He gave his life to fight the slave trade. To anticipate it is to refuse to turn a blind eye when oppression strikes. And it's to point those suffering injustice to the hope they can have in the righteous branch of Jesus Christ. We just saying these words, think of them now in the context of Jeremiah 33. O holy night, the stars are brightly shining. It is the night of the dear Savior's birth. Truly, He taught us to love one another. His law is love and His gospel is peace. Chains He shall break, for the slave is our brother. And in His name all oppression shall cease. Sweet hymns of joy and grateful chorus raise we. We, we worship when we think about this. With our hearts we praise His holy name. Christ is Lord. The branch is seated on the throne. Yahweh our righteousness. Then ever, ever praise we His power and glory evermore proclaim. You proclaim His power and His glory when you fight and you pray and you push back against the effects of sin in society. The second thing we do, we see the branch will do. Secondly, the branch brings restoration to undeserving people. The branch brings restoration to undeserving people. Now, I worked for a time right out of college at a place called Minnesota Teen Challenge. And it was a Christian drug and alcohol rehabilitation center. And it's called Minnesota Teen Challenge. That's kind of a misnomer. Probably 80% of the people in the program were adults. A lot of them, I think it was something like 60 to 65% were court-ordered. So it was, you either go spend time in prison for the stupid stuff you're doing, or you go to Teen Challenge. And it was a year-long program, so it was really long. And these people, you want to talk about people needing restoration? And I've never seen such just incredibly broken and twisted and, and hard lives before. You, you see those pictures? you ever seen them of like before and after pictures of meth addicts? Those are the people we're ministering to. Like some of the guys, it was like, not just, well, you either go serve your nine months in jail or you go to Teen Challenge for a year. Well, a year at Teen Challenge is better than... No, it's like, you either go serve 50 months in jail, 80 months in jail, or you go to Teen Challenge because you're a drug dealer. These are hard people. But you'd see the gospel break in. And it was amazing to watch. These people that come in, these guys, I always work with the guys, you know, there's an intentional separating of the genders. These guys would walk in and just like, the first chapel service, just like, I remember guys, like I would stand as one of the staff on the sides, just kind of trying to keep order in the midst of the convicts, literally. And like the new guys would kind of give you the eye. Like they're totally sizing you up. Like 
And you can just tell, like, this dude is, like, staring me down. Like, he, there is, like, this, like, thing going on 30 feet apart where this new guy is, like, I'm not afraid of you. I'm going to be coming after you. And then eight months later, nine months later, you'd be interacting with this guy and praying with him and watching him lead Bible studies and memorize Scripture and just crying about the brokenness of his life and wanting to, to see it repaired and restored and watching it happen. That's the power of the Gospel. That's the power of the branch doing his work. That's the kind of restoration he brings. None of the people in Teen Challenge deserve that restoration. You met him on the front end and it was like, man, when these people come in, it's like a prayer as you're driving to work. If there's new people there today, Lord, either don't let me interact with them or give me immense amounts of grace because they are going to be fools. They were. I'm going to talk about people perpetually in adolescence and addicted to drugs. And God would bring restoration. Enter the branch. Enter Jesus. And things change. In the context of Jeremiah 33, everything that God has built for Israel through David and Solomon, it's been squandered. It's gone. You want to know what the land is at this point? It's the boundaries of Jerusalem. Everything else is under control of Babylon. That's all that Jerusalem is. So you think of like, you ever seen in your Bible those pictures of like the Davidic monarchy and the, the you know, Solomon's dynasty? You see like, so here's David and here's Solomon. It's like, it's all this land. It's a little city. Jerusalem ain't that big. That's all that's left. And just brokenness. The enemies control everything. And in the midst of all this hopelessness, Jeremiah is told by God, go to these undeserving people. All of this has happened because they ignored me and rebelled against me and were worshiping other gods. And go to them and tell them, I promise you, I'm going to restore everything you've lost. And I'm going to restore it better than it was before. You know how you describe that? That's grace. They don't deserve to be treated like that. When, he, when Jeremiah gets the oracle, he doesn't know what's coming. He gets the oracle and it's like, oh man, what, what do I have to say now? And instead God gives him a message of grace. The land is rebelling. It's rampant with sin. You know, it's this ironic image of, of, na- of national restoration. You know, think of what you've ever seen. Like, you've seen movies, obviously, of like war zones. Like you think of like war zones where it's like just desolation. Like a war has happened here and it's just buildings are torn down, the trees are dead, the ground is black, everything's in just like those muted tones. This is just a place where death and chaos reigns, right? That's what, that's what Judah looks like. That's what the outside walls of Jerusalem look like and that's what Jerusalem itself is going to look like in a very short amount of time. And God looks at all of this and He says, I'm going to restore it. And he, there's this really sweet imagery. It's this like organic sense, right? A branch is gonna, it's gonna spring up. It's gonna sprout. In all of this, just death and decay. So you're picturing like Saving Private Ryan type scenes, right? In all of this, there's gonna be a branch. Out of this dead stump that is David's dynasty, there's gonna be new life because God's gonna bring it about. The dead dynasty is going to live again. And that's not just the end of the irony. Remember we talked about Zedekiah. He's like the puppet king. He's the uncle of the true king. So the true king gets taken away. And, you know, it's, it's Israel, so your cousins might be younger. Than, your uncles might be younger than you. It's kind of a weird deal. The true king's 19. He's hauled off to Babylon. And his uncle, Zedekiah, who's 20, gets put on the throne. So you can figure that out. Relational dynamics in ancient Israel. 
Zedekiah is on the throne. Here's the irony. You know what Zedekiah's name means? Zedekiah literally means Yahweh is righteousness. And the dude is pure evil. He's just, he's bad. He's godless. He's foolish. He, he gets a prophecy from Jeremiah saying, don't fight what's going to happen. What's going to happen with Babylon is the destruction that you deserve. God has appointed it. God's bringing these people. Don't fight it. Repent and turn. It'll go better for you. And Zedekiah says, forget that. I'm going to fight. I got no army. I got no land. I got no people. But I'm going to fight the superpower. And so, of course, he's getting trounced. That's the king. Yahweh is right. It's like, it's like meeting a woman named Hope who suffers from like unending depression. The name is just tragic. And that's who he is. A king named after God's righteousness is known for his unrighteousness. But when restoration comes, there's going to be a new kind of king. The ESD slightly misses the mark in the translation. It says Yahweh is our righteousness. That seems to kind of indicate there's going to be a king who comes who's going to be righteous like Yahweh, who's going to be righteous like God. But the Hebrew is more literally rendered Yahweh our righteousness. It means the Messiah to come is actually going to be the Lord. It's a hugely prophetic utterance, which is exactly what happens in Christ. He fulfills everything Deuteronomy 17 says. So way back in Deuteronomy, God knows the people are eventually going to want a king. They're not going to be satisfied with me as their king. And so they're going to cry out for a king. And so Moses, you write this down. We're going to call it Deuteronomy 17. It's going to be the law of the king. So when they go to that point where they reject me and they want a king, this is what the king needs to be like. Part of Deuteronomy 17 describes the king is supposed to have his own personal set of the law. Now this isn't like, oh, here's my... My handy Bible, it's so nice. It's got a little leather cover and I can just kind of hold it. And if I want to, I can get a smaller one and kind of put it in my bag or put it in my back pocket. It's like you got scrolls and parchment. So like a personal set of the law is a big deal. The king has to have his own personal set of the law, the entire Pentateuch of the Torah, because he's supposed to have it with him at all times. And the king is supposed to know the law and love the law and rule from the law. And here they are sitting there and it's like, this king doesn't even, doesn't even want the law in his house. But here's the promise. In Christ, there's going to be a king who arrives as a living, breathing copy of the law. He doesn't need his own in front of him. He is going to walk out and fulfill all that the law calls for. Listen how Jeremiah promises it earlier in the chapter, in verse 6. Behold, I will bring it, I will bring to it, to this people, health and healing, and I will heal them and reveal to them abundance of prosperity and security. I will restore the fortunes of Judah and the fortunes of Israel and rebuild them as they were at first. I will cleanse them from all the guilt of their sin against me, and I will forgive all the guilt of their sin and rebellion against me. It's an exciting thing that Jeremiah finally gets to bring. But nobody really understands it. They're expecting a king who's going to come and it's going to be like pomp and circumstance and glory. And we see in Matthew 21, that's exactly what they expect, right? Like all these things are kind of happening and the people kind of pick up. Hey, this is like the branch. He's here riding on a donkey, fulfilling a prophecy. 
Get out the instruments. Wave the palm branches. Treat him like king. He's coming back into Jerusalem. There's this celebratory sense. Instead, what unfolds is the intimate way that Jesus, as the Davidic branch, will fulfill the role Yahweh our righteousness. He's going to bring healing and forgiveness. But as Jesus enters Jerusalem to fulfill the prophecy of Jeremiah, He's doing it as the bearer of David's name. He's doing it as the fulfiller of the dreams of restoration. He is the Messiah of God. He's a real flesh and blood king. But David's heir is entering David's city to die. He's going to heal by taking on disease. Verse 17 says this, For thus says the Lord, David shall never lack a man to sit on the throne of the house of Israel. And the Levitical priests shall never lack a man in my presence to offer burnt offerings, to burn grain offerings, and to make sacrifices forever. In Jesus, this prediction of salvation that Jeremiah gives us occurs with the Messiah's death. He will become Yahweh's righteousness. He will give that righteousness to all the people. He will bring restoration and forgiveness because He will die. Listen to the words we sang this morning. Hail the heaven-born Prince of Peace. Hail the Son of Righteousness. Light and life to all He brings, risen with healing in His wings. Mild He lays His glory by, born that man no more may die. Born to raise the sons of earth. Born to give them second birth. Hark, the herald's angels sing. Glory to the newborn king. The baby in Bethlehem. The branch sprouting up. The baby born in the city of David is a branch that's going to grow so it can be cut down. So that Broken, diseased branches can be taken and grafted back in. The branch comes to restore undeserving people. Third and final thing the branch does. The branch proves God's unfailing faithfulness. The branch proves God's unfailing faithfulness. My favorite part of the passage is how it finishes. Twice, there's a repetition. God repeats this promise to the people. And it'll make sense as we look at it. And I'm only going to read the second one. In verse 24, he says, Have you not observed that, the, that these people are saying, Yahweh the Lord has rejected the two clans that He chose. Thus they have despised My people so that they are no longer a nation in their sight. Thus says Yahweh the Lord, If I have not established My covenant with day and night and the fixed hour and order of heaven and earth, then I will reject the offspring of David, of Jacob and David my servant and will not choose one of his offspring to rule over the offspring of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. For I will restore their fortunes and will have mercy on them. That's an incredible statement. Here's God sending a word of just remarkable encouragement 
solely because he knows our frame. He knows our weaknesses. He knows, he he knows how difficult it's going to be for us to hope in this word. The world is crumbling around Judah, literally. Their enemies are dominating. In this passage, we hear them echoing this sense of, God's forsaken us. Have you ever had those moments where the disappointment is just that acute? And it's that thick and it's that hard? It's like you can almost chew it. Lord, where are you in this? There's this massive fear in Jeremiah's day that they are just going to get snuffed out. And it's not just some philosophical question. Is God going to allow His people to not be victorious at all times? It's like, if God doesn't preserve us and save us, we're going to die. People are going to get put to the sword. You sit there and those kind of things are going on around you and real doubts creep in. How can they have hope in a future king when Jerusalem is about to be destroyed? How? How can you have hope in God's good promises? when the sickness that's been racking your body for years not only hasn't left, it's just gotten worse. How do you hope in God's good promises when you have prayed for your husband, your son, your daughter until your knees were bloody that they would know Jesus and it still hasn't happened? Here's how. God promises. God vows. As surely as the sun rises and sets. As surely as the moon waxes and wanes. As surely as the covenant He's made with the heavenly spheres. That they go in their orbits according to what He says. That's how confident we should be in His faithfulness. God's answer is remarkable. Only if it were possible for him to to stop his covenant with the Son would it be possible for him to break his covenant with David. Here's what he's saying. Could God stop having the sunrise? Of course he could. Here's the point he's making. Existentially, he's saying this. You get in these moments of doubt and disappointment and despair, and it's like, you just sit there and just think, "How how do I believe? How do I trust? How do I hope? Everything around me says... Things are not working out. And it's not just a bad day. It's a bad month. It's a bad decade. God looks at it and says, you need to think about it this way. Do you ever doubt that the sun will rise? You don't give it a passing thought. Every night when we go to bed, we close the blinds in our east-facing windows. I don't know. I don't think, well, should I close them at night? Maybe the sun won't come up. Maybe the sun won't wake me up in the morning. I don't even think that. I just think they've got to be closed so I don't get woken up before I want to get woken up. None of us gives any thought to the fact that the moon is going to be there. That the tides are going to do their thing and all the things that are impacted by the ocean's tides are going to do their thing. Most of us don't even think about all the things that are impacted by those things. We just assume it's going to happen. It's always happened. I completely trust that this evening the sun's going to go down 
and it's not going to stay dark forever. That's the confidence you should have in God's promise. That's how committed he is. That's how committed Judah should be that this dead stump of David's dynasty is going to be restored. It's how confident we can be. No matter how dark the discouragement, no matter how constant the disappointment, and sometimes it seems constant, wave upon wave, we can know. We can know like the sun rising and setting. We can know that because of the righteous branch, God is working for His people in Christ Jesus. His Word promises that our hopes are established in Him. The beauty of it is, God says this, not just because He's bragging. Hey man, I'm kind of a big deal. Like I control the sun and the moon. All that stuff happens because I like kind of spin it on my finger. Sometimes I get bored, so I switch to my pinky. That's your confidence. I'm that big. No, He says it because He knows we don't have that perspective. We sit there on the spinning globe and we just lose sight of what's going on. He knows our frame. He knows we need the Word that says, I will never leave you or forsake you. So He meets us in our moments of need, in our nights of deepest disappointment, with the encouragement and the promise we're desperate for. On May 7, Roger Simmons got honorably discharged from the army. So he was a good guy, not dishonorably. Got honorably discharged from the army. You just don't forget a date like that. You've served in the military for a while. You're discharged. He's heading home. You can imagine he's got like the rucksack thrown over his shoulder. He's still in uniform. hasn't even taken off the uniform yet. He's so anxious to get home. He just decides, man, I'm just going to hitchhike it back. And so he takes the road. He's hitchhiking and he's close. Like, like he's, he's within shouting distance of home. It's a couple hours away. So he's sitting on the side of the highway in uniform, rucksack thrown over his shoulder. He's hitchhiking and he throws up his thumb and sees a car coming. And immediately he's like, ah, this is beautiful black caddy. Like cruising down the road like, this guy is not stopping for me. (laughs) Caddies don't typically stop for hitchhikers. It's like crazy college students piled up on a road trip that stop for hitchhikers. So he's got his thumb out and sure enough, the caddy stops and pulls over. Probably because he's got his uniform on, right? I guess I can trust this guy. So he jumps into the vehicle. Hey, man, thank you so much. Where are you heading? He's like, well, I'm heading to Chicago. Where are you going? I live just outside. I'm kind of on the way. Oh, great, no problem. I can take you there. Let's go. They exchange you know, names. Hey, I'm Roger Simmons. Hey, name's Hamilton. Oh, awesome. What do you do? I've got a business back in Chicago. Cool. So they, they talk, and they're kind of exchanging stuff. Roger's a believer. And basically from the moment he sits down in the car, he feels and senses, I'm supposed to share the gospel with this guy. And we've all had that feeling, right? Oh, I don't want to. It's going to be so awkward. Like, he's giving me a ride. I don't want to make him feel weird. Who knows what he's going to say? And it's just sitting there. And it's just, he's, he's like pushing it down, you know, suppressing the spirit. It's a really not godly thing to do, but he's doing it. So he's keeping the conversation, neutral topics. They're talking. And they're about 30 minutes away from his, his home where, he, where he's going to exit the vehicle. 
And it's just gripping him, and he knows, i got to do it. I have to do it. And so he just says, hey, you know, Mr. Hamilton, I, I just want to talk with you about something important. And he just shares with him the gospel. Explains to him the story of redemption. About a righteous branch named Jesus. Who takes away our sin and restores our hopes. It's kind of like one of those, he's like, okay, I'm done, I did it. And the guy slows down, stops, pulls over, and he's thinking, oh no. He's going to boot me out of the vehicle. You know, like, I, I finally did what God wanted, and he's just about to kick me to the roadside. Dude, get, get out of my car, you weirdo. And instead, grips the steering wheel. And he kind of kind of slumps his shoulders. And he bends, he bends his head forward. And the guy prays. He repents. He's broken and he seeks forgiveness in Christ. And he lifts his head and he just says, thank you for sharing. This is like the greatest thing that's ever happened to me. It's just like they kind of share a moment. Like drive another five minutes. Well, this is my stop. Hey man, here's my card. Thank you. If you're ever in the neighborhood, look me up. Out the door, on his way. Five years go by, Roger is going through his suitcase at some point. He's, got mar- he's married, he's got a couple kids, a business of his own. And he sees the little business card from five years prior. And he says, you know, I'm going actually to Chicago right now on a business trip. I'm going to look him up. So he goes to Chicago. He finds Hamilton Enterprises. He walks in and the receptionist is there. And I'd like to see Mr. Hamilton. I'm sorry, that's not possible. You can see his wife though. And so he's kind of puzzled. He walks into the office. And it's a nice office. I mean, this is a good business. It's flourishing. And there's this woman... In her fifties, and she's kind of serious look on her on her face, and he kind of sits down. And he's like, "What am I going to say now?" Like I was expecting to meet the guy that I knew and be like, "Hey, brother!" You know, it's like, "Hi, wife of brother who's never met me." He sits down and he says, "Well, um, yeah, just wanted to come by and, and and see your husband." And she says, "You knew my husband?" "Oh, yeah, he picked me up after the war. I, I was hitchhiking home." Well, can you tell me when that was? And he says, yeah, actually, I can. It was, it was May 7, five years ago. It was the day I was discharged. I just remember that day, May 7. Is there any special reason? I mean, do you know him besides that? Is that you know, that's the only reason. He just he picked me up, and I just wanted to s- stop by and say hi. So is there anything special about why you want to say hi? Well, um, same thing, kind of hesitates. Do I go there? Do I like tell her what happened? He says, well... Yeah, Mrs. Hamilton, I, I explained the gospel to your husband that day. He pulled over on the side of the road, and I thought he was going to boot me out of the car. And he started weeping. And, and we prayed together, and he gave his life to Christ. And this, like, stern lady, Ruby, starts just getting racked with sobs. She's just tearing up. She can't even get a grip on herself. She finally, like, he's just sitting there kind of awkwardly, like, ah, what did I do? What did I say? And she finally pulls herself together enough to say, I had prayed for my husband's salvation for years. And I believed God would save him. And Roger says, Where's your husband? 
She says, he's dead. He was in a car crash right after he let you out of the car. He never got home. And for all these years, I thought God was unfaithful. For all these years, I've struggled with doubt that God hadn't done what I was so sure he was going to do. That God hadn't kept his word. But God had kept his word. And here's the thing. That's a subjective sense that she had. This wasn't some infallible, inerrant word that she received from God. It was a subjective sense that she had in the Spirit. And God was faithful to it. Five years later, five years of waiting, God comes and says, I know your frame. I know these five years have been a trial. Here, meet the man who did exactly what I promised would happen to your husband. Little subjective sense she got from God. God speaks and works in those ways. And here, we have the objective word. Unfailing and inerrant. And God says, He promises, put your hope in the righteous branch. He will undo all the wrongs. He will restore all the brokenness. He will never prove unfaithful. You know how many years of disappointment Israel waited? Simeon gets the word. You're going to meet the Messiah. 600 years. 600 years after Jeremiah promised he would come. But as surely as the sun rises and sets, God is faithful to His promise. Would you bow your heads? (laughs) 